0: On the Lean Out podcast, we've been diving into pandemic school closures and trying to get to the bottom of why there was so little debate over this. Well, my guest on the podcast today has some insights to share with us. She's a mother of four and an open schools advocate, and she's been outspoken on the issue from the very start.
1: The silencing of debate and dissent in this country is incredibly problematic. You know, if you can't have debate and discussion about important issues of the day, you can't actually find any kind of truth. And those of us who spoke out on this were silenced and we were called terrible names and that includes doctors. And so there was no real public conversation. And I would argue that if there had been a real public debate on this subject, schools would have opened way sooner. That's why it's important.
0: Jennifer Say is an American author, filmmaker, business executive, and former gymnast. Her new book is called Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. Jennifer Say is my guest today on Lean Out. Jen, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you and really nice to have you on. I'm excited to speak with you about this book. Now, you went into the pandemic as a progressive liberal. You were a senior executive at Levi's, very progressive company that was ahead of the curve on LGBTQ rights, giving employees spousal benefits before gay marriage was legal. You yourself, mother of two Black sons, were involved in supporting movements for racial justice, executive sponsor of Levi's. Resource Group for Black Employees. I say all of that because you broke ranks with the progressive left over school closures. I want to start with a moment in your book. You're reading Alex McGillis' reporting on the children that were left behind by school closures. Tell me about the emotional impact on you reading that piece.
1: Well, I had been speaking out since March, when everything shut down, because I'd been, you know reading the data on children, there was plenty of data available. The children were very, very unlikely to get sick and and not so likely even to spread. There was plentiful data available. I was obsessing over, poring over it. And so, you know, I'd been outspoken since the very beginning. And you know, at first, no one said anything to me at work. It actually took quite a while. It took until September. I don't know if no one noticed or or what, but eventually the call came. And so there was quite a bit of back and forth telling me to think about what I was doing and what I was saying, because, you know, when I spoke, I represented the company. And then that fall, this piece by Alec McGillis appeared in both The New Yorker and ProPublica about the harms to low-income children. And first of all, I wept when I read it. The poor child, um, Shamar, I believe his name was, you know, just struggled. No real responsible adult at home to help him. No Wi-Fi. This was a kid that had a lot of potential, that McGillis himself had tutored, and just struggled and struggled. And essentially got no schooling at all and no support from the public school system, which he needed, whether that was tutoring or food or just looking out for his well-being. And to me, it was also obvious that this is what was going to happen. But to see it in print was really moving. And I thought, well, this is a moment. This is a moment that even liberals will come around to. I mean, it's the New Yorker, for goodness sake, like the liberal (laughs) uh, progressive doesn't love the the New Yorker, so I thought it had that stamp of approval. and I took the opportunity to write a proposal at that point to some of my peers at Levi's to say, you know we're a company that has weighed in on critical issues in the past, of importance to our employees benefits healthcare benefits for LGBTQ employees we were the first fortune 500 company to offer that it was extended to unmarried straight employees as well this was before you know anyone had even contemplated gay marriage and we did it because it impacted our employees and so i thought our employees are being affected every employee that has a child in public school they can't really work we should, we should weigh in. So I wrote a proposal and cited his piece, but the decision was made and came back to me that we not be weighing in on this subject. I, I should mention that the other factor that I thought would play a role is that at this point, the private schools in my city that I used to live in, San Francisco, had also opened. So most of my peers had their kids in school which to me said one they weren't afraid to send their kids to school and two they believed in the importance of in person schooling and because of our stances around you know equality for all employees and for all people i thought well they'll they'll surely see now and you know and it's not like i think if levi's had weighed in that everything would have changed but companies can hold sway and it would at least locally i thought put some pressure Mm. on local officials. If we had, I don't know, written an op-ed in one of the local papers or made a public statement about the importance of in-person education,
0: mm, which is something but, that Levi's executives had done, had done in the past. As you point out, I will get more into, to the situation with Levi's in a moment, but first let's set the stage here. I mean, we have on this podcast listeners from around the world. So tell me a little bit about the context. How long were California public school kids out of class? And, and also if you can touch on the playgrounds, cause those were closed for a long time too, I understand.
1: Yeah, that's right. And everything that I sort of spoke out about and pushed back on, at least in the first year during 2020, was pertaining to children. California schools were closed the longest of any state in the United States. For all intents and purposes, they were closed for 18 months um, and did not open until the fall of twenty one there was a modest amount of you know hybrid in the spring starting as late as april in the spring of 21 that they like to say they opened schools but it was just a scant few schools for maybe one day a week for the most high risk children so you know i think it's a lie to say that schools opened in the spring of 21 they they opened in the fall of 21 longest state in the nation for school mm-hmm. closures in san francisco specifically a very liberal progressive city Playgrounds were actually closed for approximately 10 months. They opened briefly, I think in September of 2020, you know, they'd closed instantly in in March, and then they closed again, because there was a surge. But at that point, parents pushed back, parents went crazy, because if you live in a city you often don't have a yard so these kids were just stuck at home on screens nowhere to play and when i say don't have a yard you know i'm not just talking about low income folks in in public subsidized housing and and that was one block away from me but even in a nice apartment like i had we didn't have a yard either and so my two youngest children who at the time i think were 3 and 5 i mean there was nowhere to play Mm. You know, they were literally just locked up at home. And and I should mention that the playgrounds had yellow tape around them. The swings were chained together so that even if you, you know, were brave enough, as, as we often did, to jump the fence, the kids couldn't really play. And citizens were encouraged to sort of tell on other citizens. And so, you know, often we jumped the fence into an empty playground and people would call the police on us. And police would come and usher my husband, who is a stay-at-home dad, would would usher us away from from the playground. So, and on top of playgrounds, I should I should say it went a step further. Basketball hoops, you know, on public courts were either boarded over or the hoops were taken down. Teenagers couldn't go play a pickup game of basketball. In some instances, beaches were closed in the Bay Area, so kids couldn't surf or adult. Skate parks, you know, like skateboarding ramps were filled with sand. So, you know, discouraged at every turn from going outside, from playing, from moving their bodies. The message clearly sent was, you should just stay home, which mm-hmm. as we know, is not really the safest place to be. And we also know now there's been just an incredible increase in, you know, and weight gain amongst young people, I think, a doubling of BMI. And so this was outside, it was never, it was never unsafe for kids to play outside. But I think the other strong signal it's sent is that kids are dangerous, and that kids are in danger. And I think that's sent the message to the school board and to everyone else that the schools needed to stay closed. Kids were just viewed as dangerous vectors of disease.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so astonishing as you detail it now, uh, looking back on it. But at the time, it was very controversial to bring these things up. And
1: you just oh. pointed out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was pretty vocal about the playgrounds and the basketball courts from the beginning. And i that's when the pushback online started. And I mean, Mm -hmm. people published my address online, you know, which is publicly available if you look, but that's different than kind of publishing it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. You know, the assumption being that I should be targeted in some way for saying playgrounds should open.
0: There was one other point I just wanted to touch on briefly, and that is you mentioned your colleagues, your executive colleagues, their children were in private schools, which which were open. You chose um, to have your, your kids in public school. That's a deliberate choice you and your family have made. Tell me a little bit about your reasoning for that, because it does go against the grain a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had decided, you know, I have two older children as well as the two younger. They are 22 and 19. And, you know, the first was born in 2020. And I should say that, you know, at the time he started school, which I think was 2005, I I mean, I couldn't really have afforded private, um, which was not the driving reason. I mean, I suppose I could have scraped it together, but I wasn't raking it in. And I was... You know, I was the primary breadwinner. We weren't really a two-income household. I wasn't an executive at the time. So it would have been very, very difficult, but that's not the reason. The reason is I believe in the public school system, even after all that's happened. And I, I want my kids to be part of the community that they live in. I feel like in the private schools, they'd be kind of cordoned off from the city that they live in. And that wasn't the experience that I wanted for my kids. You know, I just, I didn't want them to be in a situation that, you know, it was only kids like them that came from more privileged backgrounds. I wanted them to experience the diversity of the city because I think that's part of an education. And As my kids got older, you know, I had them two in SFUSD, which is the San Francisco public school system. I was very happy with the education. They did really well. They went all the way through, graduated high school. One is done with college now. He went to a public university, Berkeley, and the other is in college and they thrived. So I was very happy with it. I didn't understand this idea that somehow we were too good for public education just because I could have, and I'll, you know, of course I could have afforded it. At a certain point in my in my career, but I don't know. I just felt I always really believed in the public school system and being part of the community. and if you don't think they're good enough, then work to improve them.
0: let's talk let's talk a little bit about Levi's here. I mean, i'm I'm so curious about the turn from progressive uh, corporate culture which you participated in, championed to the woke kind of capitalism that you talk about in your book. And and one of the criticisms you make at Levi's CEO, Chip Berg, as he was espousing woke beliefs in public, he was laying off Levi's employees and collecting a $42 million paycheck. So let's talk about this sort of move of woke capitalism more broadly, given your insider perspective on this. What is woke capitalism and how does it operate?
1: My view is that It's a marketing strategy and that it is a pose, really, that is not authentic, that is not actually interested in social justice. But it avails itself of social justice politics to market the business and the brand while putting nothing at risk, Um, no skin in the game, really. It really is a way, I think, at least the companies believe, to engage younger consumers which in fashion, which Levi's is, is the sort of holy grail, right? You want these younger folks who buy more, spend more, and have influence um, in terms of what's cool in fashion. You want those. And the Levi's brand had aged over the years. And the average age of consumer when I started as the CMO, the chief marketing officer, I think was late 40s, early 50s. So that's not a recipe for a successful brand long term. And so I think the belief is, right, don't think I know, this is a, a means of engaging younger consumers. But there's more at play than that. Because I think CEOs and C-suiters, they are very eager to kind of distance themselves from business leaders of the past, you know, the robber barons and oil barons and Occupy, you know, those that kind of created the Occupy Wall Street crisis, even to some extent, I would say, you know, pharma CEOs who created the opioid crisis, they don't, it's not enough to be rich. They want to be hailed and celebrated as do-gooders and altruists. And I'm not suggesting, it's just dishonest is what I would say, because at the end of the day, business is as it always has been. It's about making money. And if you are not profitable and growing your revenue, you're not really in business anymore at a certain point. And so that's what I mean by it's it's, it's a lie. And it's a, it's just a new, you know, this progressive sheen is a new way um, to drive the business and retain the existing power structure and glean untold fortunes for shareholders and CEOs alike. And it's the dishonesty that I call out. (laughs) Um, And I'm not suggesting in any way that the old capitalism is good. I don't think, you know, I do think there need to be protections. I think, you know, subprime mortgage crisis is, is an example of that. The opioid crisis is an example of that. But at the end of the day, my belief, and I call it normie capitalism in the book, Is make the best product you can, sell it at a fair price, market it in a way that's truthful and appealing, treat your employees with fairness, pay them fairly, treat them equally, give everybody an opportunity to succeed. And there you go. That's that's an honest business strategy. And that's not, that's not what's happening. I think that CEOs also, you know, we're in this era of. I'm not your dad, I'm your friend. And I think they are eager to impress their, their children, their young adult children and, you know, impress them with their progressive bona fides mm. uh, because it's almost like the money is shameful at this point. You know, when we're all renouncing our privilege to have that much money, 43 million in one year payout is mm-hmm. it's kind of grotesque. And so, and the Everyone accepts it, you know when when we laid off close to a thousand employees in twenty twenty, but we said at Levi's that we were doing it with empathy. Meanwhile, shareholders, and as you articulated, the CEO, I think cashed out forty two million in stock, that's what's happening behind the scenes. I would argue the empathetic action would have been to fight to get our stores open so we could retain employment for the for the employees of Levi Strauss and Company not lay them off with a statement saying we were doing it with empathy, because there isn't anything empathetic about leaving folks without a job.
0: Let's talk about your own departure from Levi's. Uh, You say that you were pushed out and you say that you received a number of warnings about your uh, school closure advocacy on Twitter and a list from HR of topics that you should avoid and or delete tweets on. Um, It seems in your telling that a turning point came when you decided to appear on Fox News and you write in the book that Levi's employees were, quote, apoplectic. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. And I should say, you know, there was pushback before that, but that's when it really kind of blew up. Um, You know, i had been spoken to probably five or six times before that choice. Um, But in February of 2021, my husband and I decided to move our young children. My older children were, you know, in college. Um, We decided to move to Denver where the schools were open because my kindergartner We wanted him to experience some kindergarten in his first year of schooling. He was having a terrible experience, as you might imagine, with virtual schooling. Um, And I posted about it on Twitter and it got, you know, some pickup. I think Jake Tapper retweeted it from CNN. And at that point, you know, we quickly moved to Denver. We had called a school and they said, sure, you can come Monday. So we're like, OK, we packed our bags and, and we got on a plane and we went and then The Laura Ingram Show, I think it's called the Ingram Angle, reached out because they'd seen the tweet and asked me to appear on the show. I should, I should say, you know, I'd never watched Fox, I'd never watched her show. I knew the reputation, so I was hesitant, as you might imagine. I talked to a bunch of my open schools moms across the country, and I said, "What would you do? You know, what do you think?" And and we had tried together as a grassroots, loosely connected group of moms to get our voices and opinions heard and make quote unquote mainstream media, CNN, et cetera. We'd pitched because they constantly had on, you know, doctors and everybody advocating for closed schools and no parents talking about what they were seeing in their communities and with their children to no avail. And so we decided do it, you know, it's a national program you can handle yourself, meaning me. I was you know, media trained. I wasn't going to say anything I regretted. And I didn't. I stand by everything I said in the show. And sure, I disagree with her on some other issues. But so what? I mean, that's part of my message now is we all have to talk to each other, even those of us who disagree. Mm. Um, and that just unleashed the beast um, amongst employees at Levi's because merely associating with her and and folks acknowledged there was nothing wrong with what I said. Many at this point agreed. Many were struggling with their own kids, but I'd talked to the enemy. You know, she was viewed as anti-LGBTQ and our organization is very pro, as am I. Um, And therefore, I was the enemy. And it's it's like just talking to her made me an alt-right lunatic, you know, and I got called all sorts of unemployable names. I was a racist and I was a bigot and I was anti-trans and all of these things because I had spoken to her. Mm. You know, that was the net net. And so from there, and I, you know, I remained employed for a full year after that or close to a full year, but it was just a constant battle and employees were constantly complaining about me and that got to be too much for the powers that be.
0: Mm. And tell me about the final conversation in which your career at Levi's ended.
1: Well, the interesting part is even though I had received pushback and talking twos in 2020, I did get promoted in 2020 from chief marketing officer to brand president. So I think that's a testament to the fact that I was performing and and doing the job. And we were, you know, coming out of the lockdown hole and. Performing above our peers and you know regaining all that we'd lost. Our business had been down close to seventy percent when stores were closed around the world. So at the time, late twenty twenty, throughout twenty one, I was the brand president overseeing all of product and marketing and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I and I begin to ha- began to have the conversation with my boss, the CEO, that I could potentially be the next CEO. So these things were happening concurrently, you know, stop, 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 but, oh, hey, you're doing great. And you could be the next CEO, which wasn't something I'd contemplated before. Honestly, I didn't even know if I wanted, which is what I had said to him, but it was made clear to me in the, in the summer of 2021 that I needed to stop with the advocacy because at this point it wasn't just social media. You know, I'd been on the news, national and local. I had written op-eds. I, I, I was, Attending every school board meeting, I was outspoken. I had led rallies, so it gets positioned as just tweeting in the in the media. But it really was more than that. I was not just this sort of keyboard warrior, as they call them. But anyway, I was told time and again, you have to stop. And I I kept saying I was not going to do that. This meant too much to me, and you know, kids' health and well being was at stake. Eventually, he said you know, we need to do a background check on you and your husband. I thought my husband, that's a little weird, but okay. We had to consent. And when the result, and I said at the time, here's what's going to happen. I I knew what was going to happen. And I said this to him in a conversation, there's no financial entanglements. I've never done anything, you know, I've never been arrested, (laughs) but you're going to find my social media and the response to it to be a gray area. And you're going to decide that it's not It's too much risk, you know, too much reputational risk for the company, which is, I believe what happened. I've never seen the report and I did not have the wherewithal in the moment when he told me that the decision was, no, you can't be CEO and no, you can't keep your current job. I didn't have, you know, I was shaken, as you might imagine, and I did not ask for it. I'm not so sure that he would have shown it to me because I think it probably was quite gray, you know, so I could have pushed back. Uh, But that was the idea. And the reason I couldn't keep my current job in corporate lexicon, (laughs) my chair was a primary, what we would have called a feeder role for CEO. Mm -hmm. So if I was occupying it and I couldn't be CEO, I was taking a very important seat from somebody that could. And succession planning was important because he wanted to retire soon. So I was left without a job and offered severance verbally. They never sent me the package. and I decided I would not take it because I knew that a package would come with the signing of an NDA on the context of my leaving the company. I didn't want to be silenced.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the New York Times covered your departure, and uh, Levi disputed your account, which um, you published at Barry Weiss's Substack, Common Sense. So Levi denies that you were pushed out for veering away from left-leaning orthodoxy, but also they deny your claim that you walked away from $1 million in severance in order to speak freely about the company. just want to read from the New York Times. Levi said Ms. Say had quit rather than negotiate an exit package, which would have contained a non-disclosure agreement. It, quote, would not contain a prohibition on the executive speaking out about matters of public interest, such as school closures or on engaging in any legally protected speech. That's from Kelly McGillett. Kelly McGinnis, McGinnis. senior vice president of corporate affairs at Levi's. You say in the book, something of a rival. What What is, how do you respond to, to what Levi's has said?
1: I won't dispute that. I did quit. I quit without accepting or signing the deal offered to me. And they can you know, pretend that that was not on offer and that that wasn't the amount. But frankly, that's a standard package for an executive of my level. Anyone in the business community or the executive community knows that. In fact, you know, I've gotten notes from people saying that's all they offered you. So and she's correct. I'm not disputing that they couldn't have prohibited me from speaking out about schools. Of course, they couldn't have. They couldn't prohibit me from doing that while I worked there what would have been prohibited is why i no longer worked at levi's and why i no longer worked at levi's was because my speaking out about schools was too problematic so i was told i couldn't have a job so you know i think they're playing with language here and i i don't dispute what they have said i of course i could have continued talking about schools and kids i couldn't have talked about why i was pushed out the door and i felt that was too important because the silencing of debate and dissent in this country is incredibly problematic. You know, if you can't have debate and discussion about important issues of the day, you can't actually find any kind of truth. And those of us who spoke out on this were silenced and we were called terrible names and that includes doctors. And so there was no real public conversation. And I would argue that if there had been, A real public debate on this subject, schools would have opened way sooner. That's why it's important. Besides the fact that it's codified in the Constitution, and I know everyone will say, yeah, but it's a private company. They can do what they want. Yes, of course. I'm not arguing that, but it's the culture of free that is lacking today. And so, sure, a public company can do that, but should they? I was talking about things that had nothing to do with my job performance outside of work. Why is that not Okay.
0: You also mentioned your husband was included in that uh, background check and you write about this in the book. So your, your husband is vocally anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine mandates, as as well as uh, an advocate on the school closures. Your husband, who is Jewish, compared the vaccine mandates to the banning of Jews from public life in Nazi Germany. Um, how, how much of a role do you think that played in your situation?
1: I think it, it played a, a large role. I mean, I don't think it was the only driver, but he, you know, his tone is very different than mine in life and online. (laughs) I tend to adopt the diplomatic voice that women often adopt, um, not as aggressive as his. And I also, you know, talked much less, not at all, you know, in the in the first year about vaccine mandates, I got vaccinated when the company required it. I was careful not to speak out against any company policies. I was very focused on kids. He was not. He doesn't work there. But his his advocacy was called into question. I had to answer questions about it at work. But I would, you know, and I, I won't get into whether or not I agree with how he did it or not did it. It's not really the point. Should we be held accountable for things our family members say and do, you know, if I married a Republican, can I not have a job at Levi's? What if he campaigned for, you know, Larry Elder, the Republican candidate for governor in the recall election in California? Does that make me unemployable? I mean, that's hugely problematic. I mean, that's not just political viewpoint discrimination. It's like, political viewpoint discrimination by proxy, which is not even me. And so, you know, I I take issue with that. And, you know, was I supposed to get a divorce? Was I supposed to renounce my husband in order to keep my job? Is this the world we want to live in where something your spouse says is an HR violation? I I just, I can't imagine it is. Is it? I, I really, it's still, you know, confusing. To me this is what cults do. They force you to renounce your family members.
0: Hmm. and you know as as we mentioned earlier, I mean, so you've moved your family to Colorado after thirty years in San Francisco. Um and in recent months, the tide has very much turned on the school closures issue. We're seeing widespread admission that these closures were a mistake and did a lot of harm to marginalized children as as you predicted. Um, NPR education reporter, Anya Kamenowitz has a new book out on this. She's just been on my podcast. Jill Filipovich published a piece for CNN that you quote in your book saying progressives need to have a reckoning on this issue and admit that progressives made a mistake. Um, have you seen any colleagues or anybody come around and, and say, Jen, you, you were right on this issue? I
1: have a short answer. No, (laughs) that's it. No, no one has. I mean, and even with, you know, Anya's book, which is is great in terms of how she lays out and tells the stories of the impacts on kids. It's called The Stolen Ear, I believe is the title of the book. But she falls short of stating who stole it. And so for all the you know, admission that it was a mistake. There's been no accountability. And in fact, people are in real denial mode. You know, Dr. Fauci keeps saying he had nothing to do with it. When we all know the influence he had, and he was having behind-the-scenes meetings with governors and school districts, even while saying publicly we should do everything we can to open schools. He was meeting with you know the North Carolina governor to say I wouldn't open the schools. Um, and that forced a change of hand. So no one it's like everybody wants to distance themselves at this point um, from that decision because it was catastrophic or they pretend like no one made the decision. Like it just happened. Governor Hochul in New York says it was a terrible choice, but takes no ownership. She was the Lieutenant governor at the time and she praised Governor Cuomo's decisions to keep the schools closed. And so it's sort of this bizarre situation where everybody acknowledges it was a mistake, but it seems no one made that mistake. It just happened. No one Mm -hmm. decided. But, you know, make no mistake, it was a policy decision. And some states chose differently and many countries chose differently. And you did not see, you know, the predicted, you know, widespread death of teachers and students where a different decision was made. And in fact, in a country like Sweden that never closed the schools, there was zero learning loss. Mm
0: -hmm. Zero. Wow. And Jen, I want to end on this. I mean, your book is making the case that we need this culture of free speech and open debate around the big public policy issues of our time. Um, You you did put a lot on the line to make this argument. Uh, You sacrificed this career at Levi's and you have faced a lot of public attacks for your outspokenness. Um, You did have a falling out with your brother over this. These are big prices to pay. Let's talk a little bit about why you've been willing to pay these prices for this principle. Why is open debate and free speech so important?
1: I mean, it's one of the bedrock principles of, our, of a democratic society. If you can't debate and discuss, you cannot find truth. And if we simply accept Government issued talking points as truth. We're no better than an authoritarian regime, honestly. Um, and so, to me, look, I have bad days. You know everything you described. You know my colleagues were my friends at Levi's. Um, I don't really talk to anyone. There's one um, that I that I hear from, but I had hundreds and hundreds of friends. San Francisco was the first place I ever felt at home in. I left it for a city where I know no one and there are rifts in my family. And, you know, it's strained with, with friends and, and many friends. I don't, don't speak with friends I had for 30 years. So, look, I have the debate with myself all the time. Was it worth it? But I, I come back to, yes, children were harmed. Some irreparably. Some will be fine. I know that. But far too many won't. Some kids dropped out. Some kids disengaged and will drop out. There were suicides. There were deaths of despair from drug overdose. Some kids will not recover. And that happened because we did not have a debate, public, honest, open, rational debate on this issue. And this is just one issue. There are scores of others that need to be discussed and debated. And so it just feels paramount to me. It feels like the most important thing because no issue can get solved or resolved if we can't have these conversations. So it goes far beyond this particular issue of COVID. Um, I'm just one person. <laughs> um, but if, if I don't stand by my values and my principles, I don't think I could look myself in the mirror. And I feel like it's an important fight. And I think courage begets courage. You know, when I spoke out about the abuse in gymnastics, others joined me eventually. Um, and then you become this movement. And then this movement put Larry Nasser you know, in prison, and he doesn't harm children anymore. So to me, it's akin to that. And I I know it sounds dramatic, but democracy is at stake. If we can't have these discussions, and I'm a free speech absolutist on this, you know, I think all speech needs to be allowed unless it's a direct incitement to violence. Um, The problem is, that's made very fuzzy now. But bad ideas will sink like stones, The public sphere. So let them let them out there. You know, (laughs) I don't know, maybe I'm stupid that I was willing to risk everything. I had a really nice life, but I found I couldn't live with myself if I didn't. And, you know, while it started about the kids, what became more and more alarming and more important was this idea of open debate and dissent.
0: Well, Jen, thank you for your work. Thank you for this book. And thank you for the conversation today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.